Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Lainey. Hi, it's Duanna. And this is Show Your Work. Thank you for joining us, I think, for our 10th episode. We are, um, well, here's what I wanted to mention to you is um, I am currently not wearing a bra. And the reason I'm raising this. Yes. I am a professional. I actually have realized, I think I've come to this realization in the last month or so, I do my best work while not wearing a bra. Well, that's really interesting uh, because I I could not disagree more. Not with you. Uh, I do not feel the same way um, at all, actually. So your best work is bra on? Oh, yeah. Like I mean, when you're writing, like my best writing comes when I don't have a bra on. No way. There are different bras. You can have different bras for different situations. But no, absolutely, there has to be some sort of, uh, yeah, there has to be some sort of uh, nod to to support. Yeah, and a level of, of no, it's, it's not just support. It's also like, it's also the vibe of what you're doing. Like, you can put on an ancient sports bra and get some work done, but like there has to be some intent of what the, what the clothing is doing for you there. Oh, man, like I totally disagree. Like my book was basically entirely written brawless. Every award show recap, I mean, you're with me, you've been with us, like we've been together, what, how many years of Oscars? You know I don't wear a bra that night when we're doing our all-nighter and we're like blogging after the Oscars, no bra, no bra after the Golden Globes. I was going to save this for my (laughs) tell-all book, but uh, (laughs) yes, no, this is true. But I mean, you wear things, you wear pajamas. I'm always in my pajamas, but I never, like, I cannot, I don't feel like I flow when I'm wearing a bra. P.S., the celebrity connection to this is the latest uh, newsletter of Goop, at least the one that came out uh, last night. Today is uh, Friday. So on Thursday, February 2nd, the title was Later Bra. Um, and okay. it was about uh, bra burning. No, and, no, yeah. no, no, anyway. no. Who wrote this? No, no, no. Now that you brought it up, we're going to talk about it. Who wrote, who wrote this? I don't know. Was Whoever... it supposed to be written by Gwyneth Paltrow? Well, Gwyneth wrote the introduction, and the introduction was about supporting women, and it was a very subtle attack or criticism of the immigration ban. Okay, we're going meta here. First of all, a friend of mine sent me several Gwyneth Paltrow Instagram posts during the week, which were blatantly, overtly, uh, you know, blissfully ignorant of the crisis going on. So uh, it's a little, little, little too late. Second of all, Gwyneth Paltrow Gwyneth, like double A cup Paltrow, <laughs> is writing essays about how you don't need a bra. Anymore. No, the essay wasn't about you don't need a bra. That was the intro, and then the feature this week was about bras on Goop or something like that. Right, or the lack thereof is your, is what your point is. Uh, whatever. I didn't beyond the intro where she talked about how Goop is diverse and they fight for women. I stopped reading. 
Okay, so <laughs> basically all you want to talk about is uh, a bra or lack there. It just got me thinking about something I actually haven't talked to you about. And we talk about so many things, practically everything. I haven't given you my bra theory and work. And that is that my best work comes when I do not wear a bra. Okay. No, I want to be wearing a bra to do work. In fact, if I get up early in the morning to do work, which is a thing that I learned to do when I didn't want to stay up late anymore because now I'm old, I lay out an entire like outfit of clothing that I put on even at three in the morning. It's not formal wear. It's not right. like business wear. But I've tried to work like in a robe. I've tried to work like in a t-shirt and underwear. I can't do it. I need some sort of semblance towards being up for the day. Otherwise, you just lie there at three in the morning like reading the internet instead of doing the work you need to be doing. Well, that's our call out to all of you. Let us know how you get your best work done. Bra or no bra? Or a certain bra? Like, are you Duanna where you have bras reserved for certain kinds of work? Now, if you think this is kind of a, uh, an unusual introduction to this very professional podcast about work, uh, <laughs> it's because it is our very first podcast after dark. Um, <laughs> this is an evening as opposed to a Saturday morning, so I will be curious to see if other things sort of... Uh, that are being taped in the evening lend themselves to this kind of a tone. Now, today's podcast has been planned for weeks. Um, many weeks ago, we had decided that this particular podcast was going to be dedicated to Beyonce because this is actually the one-year anniversary of the release of the video for Formation, the song and video at the same time. But the thing is, we can't actually talk about formation yet because this week, well, on February 1st, 2017, the first day of Black History Month. On Wednesday. On Wednesday. At, wait, I can tell you exactly <laughs> when. It was about 1.48 p.m. The world exploded. Exploded. Um, the Instagram record has since been broken. It trended on Twitter worldwide for hours. So now you know, we all know, Beyonce is pregnant, and she's not only pregnant, she's having twins. So let's break down exactly what was happening in your life. I was, uh, I had a meeting, but before my meeting, I was excited to go to a soup joint that I never get to go to, and I ordered something called a lemon chicken hot pot, and it was so good, and I literally, it had just arrived in front of me, and I opened my phone, and I went, oh my God. <laughs> And you were where? I was on live TV hosting a talk show. <laughs> so my phone starts blowing up. Like we have our phones on set with us. And fuck, my phone was like, like lighting up. And then our executive producer ran out during commercial break holding her phone and shoved it in my face with the Instagram. Yes. Um, with the Instagram post. And she was like, she's pregnant. And I... Literally started running around the studio saying, <laughs> blessings, everyone, blessings, everyone. Then we told the live audience, and the live audience erupted into cheers. Then we went backstage. Everybody, it was like Christmas backstage. Everybody was happy. Anyway, I know there are some people rolling their eyes, but I can tell you between me, my colleagues at work, and my colleague on Show Your Work, Duana Taha, we were bananas. So let's just explain why bananas. Uh for people who, you know, don't care or won't or, you know, are just kind of 
what it's this is not subtle. This is not cute. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it's not coy. This is I went back and watched her first pregnancy announcement mm-hmm. uh at the uh was it the VMAs? Yeah, it was. Um and it's almost subtle by comparison. <laughs> Right, when she was performing live on stage in a sequin jacket. Sure, and then- a sequin jacket, then did a full mic drop, yeah. and then opened the jacket to massage the belly, and everybody mm. went, ah, and they cut directly to a shot of Kanye jumping on top of Jay-Z, That's like, right. your boys can swim. And we were crying. We were crying in that. We were watching, and we were crying. Absolutely. And also kind of feeling one's age, because I remember always thinking that Beyonce was so young, and then she was all maternal. But this is different. This is Beyonce reborn not only as icon and feminist and, uh, you know, author of Lemonade uh, and all that it contains. This is Beyonce reborn as some sort of, like, mermaid creature. (laughs) Floral explosion. She of the, like, chiffon panty atop a roadster. Like... And then kind of Terry Richardson black and white photo. Sure, yes. Like a damp extension draped over one's unbroad body. You know, so this is kind of, it's hysterical almost. It's hilarious. Of course. And like, I'm not the type. I do not do shoots. I am not a, uh, you know, a proud like silhouette taking picture of when one's body is in bloom. Mm-hmm. But is this almost taking that to the extreme? Is this a trend? You know, obviously I was trying to think about how we would talk about this from a work perspective. And I was thinking like, not what does this do for her, but what doesn't it do? <laughs> Are we going to call these Beyonce shots now? <laughs> yeah. Like every time someone is pregnant and wants a photo shoot, what's your theme? Beyonce. <laughs> well, there's this shot where she's wearing um, kind of nude nylons, but that have this elaborate embroidery on them. Right? Yeah. And I was thinking, that's one of those things where you'd go, where am I ever going to wear these except <laughs> in a nude flower child photo shoot with my twins? <laughs> and, you know, and beyond that, when you talk about work, there's so many places we're going to go with this. But one of those is, of course, this is taking the most private precious thing and making it public in the most public way. And yet, Beyonce is still a mystery. Well, not really, though. Is she a mystery? Because you know everything you need to know. You know, Beyonce… We know everything we need to know by what she's determined is known. That's right. But what else do you need to know? That is… Beyonce has utterly eradicated, you know, when we talk about things like, well, uh, if people put it out there, then shouldn't we talk about it? Slash, don't people deserve privacy just when they're living their own private lives? I think we can fairly say she has ripped the curtain away (laughs) on privacy. This is her wanting you to know up to and including exactly how many stretch marks she has airbrushed out of the shots. (laughs) We know everything that we are supposed to know about this, right? But what, that weird, that's your, the key word there is what we're supposed to know. But what else would you want to know is the question. Uh, and I say this not just to Beyonce haters, just in general. Like, you know, speculation about when those babies 
are going to arrive. Um, a little tip about the female body. Apparently, if you have a second baby, you look much more pregnant much sooner uh, with the second one. And if it's the second and third at the same time, I would say that's amplified. So like what you're trying to say then is a person who's uh, pregnant for the second time might look at four months the way she did at six or seven months the first time. Or is the opposite? Beyonce may have taken those pictures when the strip turned pink, because my right. point. Um, <laughs> no, in all sincerity, uh, yeah. Uh, my point being, she has been intentionally vague about the due date. There's right. been no sort of information right. about that, so you can't track her movements and follow her around and all the rest of that. But other than that, I don't know what else you want to know. Well, to me, it's we've talked again and again about Beyonce does not give interviews anymore. Right. Beyonce doesn't speak. When she gives a comment, it's only over email. It's not a back and forth. It is a list of questions. She will choose which ones that she responds to, and she will type out her responses, and you don't get a follow-up. Uh, what did you mean by this? And what you mean? So it is a controlled public release of private information. Um, as Jenna Wortham wrote a few months ago in the New York Times, what Beyonce essentially has created in this era of social media is a certain avatar of public consumption that satisfies, as you are getting to a duana, public need, giving us and satiating us for what we need. But in many ways, she's able to keep so many other things private. Like, we don't exactly know when these photos were taken. We still, she's pregnant and we don't know how far along she is. Because as you said, these could have been taken in December, they could have been taken in November, they could have been taken yesterday. We Abs don't know. No, we don't know. All you can know is, okay, so a blue ivy is five years, okay, so I have this long before I need to be pregnant with twins if I want to be just like Beyonce. <laughs> um, you know, that's math that you can kind of work backwards. But I'm, I'm almost more interested in the reaction that everybody had, that everybody had. My nerdy husband was <laughs> really interested in messaging me, uh, you know, before it was two o'clock. Like, he was very excited to hope to be the one to tell me. <laughs> I, like, I'm shocked because he did the same thing to us in a joking way. Like, on our group thread, he was like, Beyonce is pregnant. And he was like, I'm the first one to tell you, right? In a jokey way, wink, wink. But I was like, please. Yeah, no, he As knew. if. But, but the fact that it penetrated everywhere so quickly is phenomenal. There phenomenal. Are, there are Star Wars memes about it. Yes. There are memes. Somebody said recently uh, on Twitter, hey, what's the deal with your president, America? And somebody else replied, oh, she's pregnant with twins. <laughs> <laughs> Even Yasik is laughing while trying not to laugh. So you know that one landed. Well, I mean, Yazik wasn't excited about Beyonce pregnant, but he understands the magnitude of what Beyonce did and whenever, like, a Beyonce ring the alarm moment happens. So let me actually pause you there and say, because what you said is he understands the magnitude of what Beyonce, and you sort of paused. And so that's where I want to kind of get to the magnitude of what Beyonce is, and rewind to a year ago, 
And the magnitude of what Beyonce was before Lemonade, before Formation. Mm -hmm. She was incredible. We had enjoyed Beyonce shows. We had enjoyed talking about this woman who stood in front of lit up feminist signs that were 25 feet high. Yes. Who, you know, ran the world, basically. Yeah. Um, but what changed when that, when that album dropped? I feel like if we were writing a novel about Beyonce, there would Go be... Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there would be part one, and it ends with 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 lemonade with the whole new level with the thing that people are still trying to write think pieces about and the subsequent formation tour uh the tank top of which I am wearing right now uh <laughs> displaying my bra and my dad uh and then there's after cuz now she's almost untouchable in a whole new way so what i always love about talking about Beyonce with you is, is that you have probably done more pre-solo Beyonce reading about Beyonce than I have. You've actually gone back and read the biography, the uh, unauthorized kind and the authorized kind. You studied the footage of uh, the pre-Destiny's Child and then Destiny's Child rehearsals on YouTube. You can basically quote Matthew Knowles. Um, And let me actually tell you why that is. Uh, My very first job in television, my high school internship, was on the kind of music video show that aired the pop videos of kind of teen acts that were not that popular in the uh, grungy era. And so it was sort of a lot of, one note also rans. And so you learn to pay attention to which ones were going to be nobodies and which ones were going to turn into something. And sort of, you know, watching things like NSYNC come up and be like, oh, no, they'll never be backstreet. Oh, well, maybe they will be. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and watching the Destiny's Childs and things like that, uh, groups like that become huge phenomena. So uh, that is from whence my education began. Yes. And I mean, I've written about this on the blog before, but you talk about that time that Beyonce, I think was 18 and went shopping into a store and Miss Tina was with her and she, Beyonce had, you know, a teenage tantrum as you do. Please. It's the best (laughs) story in the whole world. At 18, (laughs) she was already kind of, she'd recorded a couple of albums. You know, she was Famous in a way. I'm sure she was in the store wearing a cowboy hat, although the story does not detail exactly what she was wearing. It was, it's very exciting. And then? And then, you know, she pulled the teenage move, whatever, like stomping around in a store, being an asshole. What 18-year-olds behave like? Apparently, shockingly, Beyonce Giselle Knowles at the time also behaved like that. And Tina was like, no, fuck you. Go sit in the car. Made her go sit in the car. <laughs> she, wouldn't, uh, she wouldn't listen to her mother in the store. She was trying to pretend like she wasn't with her parents. You know that move that yes. you pull? And they were like, Beyonce, Beyonce. And she was trying to like act cute for some boys who were in the record store. Sure. And they were like, Beyonce. <laughs> 
And then, yeah, they had a bit of a moment in the store and they made her go sit in the car. Probably the only time that we can re- actually relate to Beyonce. Because at, at a certain point, all of us have to stop saying that we are like Beyonce. Beyonce that, is singular. Uh, that and that biography goes into detail about how much she loves Popeye's chicken. Uh, you know, and... <laughs> I mean, this is, to me, this is what I love. And when we talk about Beyonce, you are like digging up these old facts, man. Like digging up the Beyonce of the 90s. Who says they're old facts? I choose to believe that when she, you know, when she's taking off her bra and chilling out, that she's still, you know, kind of camping out with some chicken. In fact, Really digging deep now. When Beyonce was in Toronto a few months ago and we went to the show and we sang along to every word, and this will tell you a lot about who we are and how we function. I feel like it's more than a few months ago now. Like, what was it? It was May? nine months ago. Yeah. So it was a few yeah. months. Uh, Beyonce was in town. Did she do just one date or two? I don't know. Anyway. A few days after the show, it surfaced that Beyonce had ordered something like $25,000 of smoked meat from the kind of most famous Jewish deli in Toronto. And this was headline news. Everybody in Toronto was like, she went to our deli. We have the Beyonce stamp of approval. She went to our deli, you guys. She ordered our food. Um, So, yeah, I mean, to go back to your question and I went back to the back of, you know, or the beginning of Beyonce, who has she become? And what is she now? I think what I think we can both agree on is that she is singular. And that is what is interesting. What is the work that goes into being so singular? To the point where, okay, we freak out and the meat shop freaks out about Beyonce visiting their shop, but even other famous people freak out over Beyonce. Do you know what I mean? And these are people who are quite over it. Like, they're not, I mean, they hang out with each other. They're in that world. And even they still for Beyonce. So here's what I'm asking. Which comes first? The deification or the actual amazingness? I'll be honest. I've always been a fan. But when Beyonce is 23 years old and people are going, oh my God, you're Diana Ross, you're Diana Ross, even I'm kind of going easy. (laughs) Easy now. Um, So if people are saying those things about you, do you feel pressure to live up to it? Do you feel pressure to become it? Do you feel pressure to drop not only secret albums, but but videos that are enmeshed, that tell a story, that make people wonder if you murdered your husband in his sleep. (laughs) Yes. Is that Beyonce and just who she is? And that's why everybody freaks out, celebrities included. Or is she always working to live up to this expectation that people have of her? Or that she has of herself. Part of this, you you use the word deification. Mm-hmm. Part of it is also self-deification. I mean, when you drop a photo shoot like that and you gift it to the world in that way, there is something very self-royal about it. It is, there is definitely a knowledge. Let me give this to the people. The people would want this. Let me bestow upon my people a gift that I know that will bring them joy. Um, 
there's a certain aspect, there's a certain part, as humble as she fronts that she is, you know, we were standing there at her show and giggling to each other. Where, remember that part where she was like, I was just a girl from Texas. <laughs> remember that? <laughs> and you, I just had a dream and I worked hard. No. Nope. And then I got to this nope. point. Exactly. And we looked at each other and we were like, as if. But you remember that part? Absolutely. Exactly. And so she fronts like she just is a girl from Houston with a dream. But the thing is, is that she also subtly and not so subtly with flower arrangements and, you know, organza, um, <laughs> organza veils on her head uh, with her birthing photos, she also self-presents as a deity. 100%. In fact, I am feverishly scrolling to the bottom of the pregnancy album here because… Uh, <laughs> I love that we call it the pregnancy album. Like, there were so many pictures. It took me a long time to scroll. Uh, the sort of theme of the album is, I have three hearts. And the words, the poem, is written by Warsan Shire, who I believe she has quoted on the Formation album as well. Uh, but I have three hearts. Even saying that, and we get it, three hearts, three children, the whole thing. Even saying, I have three hearts, makes you superhuman. Right. It makes you <laughs> not a normal like the rest of yes. us with our one heart. Correct. It's, it almost defies comprehension, the level of calculation. 100%. Because, you know, I think about Michael Jackson and everything surrounding Michael Jackson, but the things that surrounded Michael Jackson were the Neverland Ranch and the things that he bought, or Bubbles. Elves. Bubbles the chimp. <laughs> right. Elvis had Graceland, Dollywood. Why are all these theme parks? Like, Beyonce's theme park is herself. Yes. Oh, my God. That is, yes. You're right. We know shit about what she buys. We don't know anything about where she lives. It's not about the eccentric things that she carries around. She spends all of her money and time and creativity on this. She, with the archive, and that is demonstrated through, there is no physical space to honor Beyonce in the sense, as you just mentioned, Dollywood, Graceland, Neverland. There's no physical space where Beyonce is worshipped. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. But as you have just said, everything is turned inward. She's building that archive, or, you know, we know that there's that ar archive. The camera is on on her all the time. She hoards photos and videos and releases them in timed strategic bursts. Um, it is like, it is so, I don't feel like when, once in a while I'll get that email like, wow, why do you care about Beyonce so, so much? And I'm telling you, I hope in this podcast you can understand the level of planning and preparation that goes into something like that, the creation of a self-deification plan. The strategy. The strategy involved is extremely sophisticated here, what we've seen. Yeah, I'm looking right now, and I get it. I get that you can be exhausted of somebody and enough already. But I'm looking at a woman who, by rough calculation, I am not an OBGYN, is, you know, four to six months pregnant with twins. And she is swimming with organza draped <laughs> around her nudity so that nothing is unseen. It is beautiful. It's somehow artistic and charming. And I'm watching it over and over again. And that level of focus on something like right. that takes 
Duanna, she's controlling the water. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least the shot in which she looks this way. That's right. So it's interesting because this is not somebody who is self-obsessed per se. This is somebody whose self-obsession is their work. And that's what's fascinating about it. She is, believe me, she's finding a way to make money off me right this minute as I watch her floating in her organza. Yes. And I think that on a practical level, like we've just talked really high level control and strategy. On a practical level, how is that executed? Because you can have that strategy or at least that plan, but it has to filter down. When we talk about formation and then later on lemonade, uh, that was a video that was shot largely in secret. And then the full film, Lemonade, all those videos, all that imagery, there were, let's be conservative and say dozens of people who would have had, Duanna shaking her head now. It had to be hundreds. Hundreds. It there. Had to I, be. It was a conservative estimate, but hundreds of people involved in that. And it was a major surprise in terms of what the content of the album was, what the theme of the, the album was. I mean, yes, we were all kind of thinking Beyonce's up to something, something's going to happen, but nobody knew the depth. Nobody knew the places in the heart that she would hit. Nobody knew that it would be a did he or didn't he cheat on her? Is she breaking up with him? Oh my God. 10 minutes into it, it's like, shit, is this a divorce announcement? 20 minutes in, uh, she is about to fucking whoop his ass. (laughs) 30 minutes into it, wait a minute, has she changed her mind? 40 minutes into it, oh, I think she's going to forgive him. By the like, do you know what I mean? Nobody knew that Lemonade was going to be that. And that is to control and get the buy-in and loyalty from, as you said, uh, as you said, Duanna, hundreds of people. That is work. You mean that nobody told so, on her? Nobody, nobody leaked sold her out. going on? Nobody. Nobody. In fact, the rumors were that they were working on a joint album right? The rumors, there were all kinds of rumors, but nobody would have anticipated that Lemonade and Led by Formation, which was a declaration of um, defiance, um, it was, uh, you know, a, a statement against police brutality, it was a celebration of black culture. Nobody knew that Starting from formation, Lemonade would turn into a love letter and a manifestation of black pride, specifically black female pride, and that it would be a political statement. Lemonade is an activist album. 100%. And there's no hiding that. As you say, the video for formation is overtly clear about that. There's overt Katrina imagery and there's Trayvon Martin imagery, and there's all kinds of things that make that very clear very early on. And Beyonce was very clear very early on, possibly in prose, that this was an album and a visual album for black women. And yet it resonated with so many more. Yes. Is that skill or is that luck? Oh, I don't know. You can make something specifically and say, hey, this is for my people in one specific way. This is about a specific way of growing up and upbringing, and this is for us. And also, it's for everybody. Do you think that that, even that was intentional? I I don't know. 
I, and I think that that is why I continue to be and probably will always be fascinated by Beyonce is she has never been the kind like, you know, last year before the Grammys, Taylor Swift invited the members of the Recording Academy to several listening sessions where she walked them through song by song. This is what I was thinking when I wrote this song. This is what I had in mind when I wrote this song. These are the chords. Beyonce Which, has not done that. No. And what Taylor did is not, that's not unusual. That's no. a very common thing to have a listening party. Of course. Uh, where the media gets to kind of hear what you thought. On a side, sad note, I was once invited to a Whitney Houston listening party. And it was a very intimate and, well, I wouldn't say very intimate. There were like maybe 200 people. It was in New York City. <laughs> When I say very you and intimate, 200 of your closest friends. <laughs> I didn't know anybody there, but Alicia Keys was there. Um, and she walked us through several songs on the album. And as you said, Duanna, that is industry standard. Um, Beyonce has not done that. In fact, she has not spoken one word about the inspiration behind Formation and Lemonade. She has not walked us through the process. All of it is hey, this is what I did. I've already put my everything into this. Now it's your turn to study it. And therefore, we have the lemonade syllabus. We have what wonderful black feminist scholars have given us, put together writing documents, research papers to walk us through um, that. But that's their work. She was like, I don't have to do that work. I already did my work. Well, I just want to be clear about two things. First of all, when you say a syllabus, you are not joking. There is a literal lemonade syllabus. Google lemonade syllabus and you will find it. You can download it and study it like you are in a course and feel like you are doing some work. And let's just give credit to the woman who curated slash created the lemonade syllabus. And her name is Candice Benbow, B-E-N-B-O-W. Thank you, Candice. I just want to point out one more thing, and that is that if we've spent uh, however long Yasik's rolling his eyes uh, talking about the things Beyonce does and the ways she surprises us, even if all we do is compliment her for shocking us in this age where we don't put down our phones and computers for a minute, I just want to bring it back here and say that we then have to be dealing with somebody of vastly superior intellect. There is a real love for people to talk about how, you know, dumb celebrities or stars are kind of dumb and just showing their bodies and blah, blah, blah. And I just want to be really clear. Think about what it takes to imagine all of these things. Think about what it takes to deploy, as you say, hundreds of people to keep your secrets and for it to be super creative and creatively fulfilling and having a message that is both specifically for black feminism and also somehow universal. I want to be clear that we have to be talking about somebody who has a rare intellect and a rare creativity. And for those of you who say, oh, well, it must be her choreographer, her writer, her whatever, I say, sure, for one album, maybe. For one performance, absolutely. But this is consistent now for, I would say, at least the last 10 years. And we're talking about somebody who is, obviously has these relentless wells to tap into, either intellectually or creatively. So when you ask, why are we talking about Beyonce so much? 
Why is she so amazing? Why does she take up so much time? To me, that's why. Because we haven't met somebody in a long time who has resources this deep. And to piggyback off that point on her intelligence, there is the side of Beyonce that uses that intelligence for her own purposes to promote herself. And hey, neither one of us is going to deny that Beyonce promotes herself. Constantly. Constantly. Yeah. What Beyonce does, maybe not so recognizably because either not enough people give her credit for it or she prefers to do it quietly, is that she is probably one of the biggest champions of the black creative class. You mentioned Warsan Shire, the poet who wrote many of the spoken word, uh, most, all, right? Who wrote, yes, Much, it's, I think she, yeah. it was credited to her. So who wrote all the spoken word parts of Lemonade, the film, uh, a black poet. The photographer who photographed the uh, pregnancy package, as you call it, the pregnancy album, Awal Arizku, uh, who now has his own page on people.com. <laughs> An article that was posted um, on February 3rd titled, Awal Arizku, Meet the Photographer Who Took Beyonce's Record-Shattering Maternity Portrait. A black artist based in New York, and now Awal, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, A-W-O-L, is known. Now, there are other R&B writers who have mentioned on Twitter that she requests samples from them. She requests, and she will record, what do they call demos do, mm-hmm. right? Demos. Sometimes she uses them, but sometimes she doesn't. But the fact that she's asked them to write the demos gives them other work. So then they go on to work with other artists because they have on their resume, I once recorded a demo with Beyonce. Those are all black artists. She is actually supporting the black creative class. So you do not have to like her, but you definitely have to respect her. This is unparalleled and also very exciting. (laughs) Yes, and right, as we continue to go through all those photos. Now, Beyonce, as we know, was the unofficial headline performer at the Super Bowl last year. I mean, officially it was Coldplay, but as I keep saying, that was the backup band. Can we agree on that? Uh, uh, Yeah, (laughs) I agree, but I also don't totally know why she agreed to do that because it was, she didn't need the the leg up. I don't know why she agreed to that billing, but whatever. She's feeling charitable. That's fine. Well, and then if we're talking work, she got them to agree to put up that flashcard at the end there talking about her tour. Do you remember that? Like, she was basically like… That's right. And we went bananas. (laughs) Right? She was basically like, "Uh, sure, I will take over halftime performing duties from Coldplay, but you got to put up the card at the end of the performance so that people, the world, will know that I'm going on tour. And basically, I took a photo of my TV of that card, and I was like… And then we had a group thread… Uh, are we buying tickets? Of course we are. Everybody get online on the day they go on sale. Yeah, nobody did any work that day <laughs> because we were trying to get to, through to Ticketmaster. That's right. Now, this year's Super Bowl performer is Lady Gaga. Um, right. And Lady Gaga is performing in Houston. Um, there have been some rumors, speculation that Beyonce might show up, but let's focus on Gaga right now. And specifically, um, Gaga campaign for Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Gaga has been an outspoken advocate for the LGBTQ community. 
Oh, sure. Like since her inception. Oh, my goodness. Uh, right. It is the one of the very, very first uh, platforms that she sort of supported, you know. Right. And certainly uh, of Gaga's fans who called themselves Little Monsters. That's right. Many, many, many sort of adopted that as a synonym for being of the LGBT community. That's right. She has declared herself Mother Monster the mother figure for the disenfranchised, the alienated, the outcasts. And so given this political climate, there were many people who assumed that Gaga would take this platform and perhaps send a message. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, um, on February, no, uh, last week, at the end of January, Entertainment Weekly uh, wrote about what we can expect from Gaga's set at the Super Bowl. There's going to be five or six songs. She's going to go through her greatest hits. But interestingly enough, they spoke to a source, and I'm going to quote from the article. Mm -hmm. Um, The source said that a report that the NFL asked Gaga to avoid addressing Donald Trump during her show… Um, quote, Gaga is not even interested in that, an insider says. It was never even a conversation. So we're talking now about Gaga's work, her catalog so far, her image, mm-hmm. her reputation. Will she, do you think, because we are recording, you will listen to this after the Super Bowl is done, but we are recording this before the Super Bowl has happened. So right now we are going to speculate on whether or not Gaga is going to be political or should she or I don't know. What do you think? What do you think of this quote is not even interested in that? I have to be honest and tell you that hearing you read the quote as opposed to we've been emailing back and forth and talking about what we would talk about, hearing you read it, it becomes very obvious that it is very clever doublespeak right? She is not even interested in that, i.e. in the conversation, in engaging the NFL, right? It was never even a conversation, meaning, or what's the exact quote? It was never even a conversation. It was never even a conversation, meaning she did not deign to discuss it. Uh, Because at the beginning of this podcast, when we were deciding what to talk about, I thought, what is she doing there? Who are they getting to the Super Bowl by having Lady Gaga perform? I, the Super Bowl is the most highly watched program of the year. Is that true? Yeah. They don't need us. They don't need us people who don't watch football to be like, I think I'll check out what Stephanie Germanata is doing. So why would she do it unless she had something to say? She said um, in a press conference this week, the... Typically, the halftime performer has a press conference. That was, remember when Beyonce was accused of lip syncing at the inauguration and then she showed up at the press conference and sang? (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember that? Nobody said she wasn't petty. (laughs) 
Remember that? You remember. Now I remember. Anyway, so typically the halftime performer has a press conference a few days before the big game. And in her press conference, she was asked about many things. But one of the things she was asked about is who she was performing for. She gave a very eloquent, and I'm paraphrasing here, an eloquent answer about the fact that in her career, she has always performed for the downtrodden. She has always been a symbol for those who didn't feel loved and that she hoped that what she was doing just by being there was an example to those who have felt neglected and who have been betrayed and abused and, you know, forgotten that she was acting as that symbol. I mean, that is a big paraphrase, but basically that was her message. Okay, I'm not going to sue you for the paraphrase, but to me that sounds like she's saying, hey, America, Super Bowl fans, you are the downtrodden, even if you don't know it yet. Like, is that not also a political statement? Or am I misinterpreting the type of statement that she made? Like, less than a year ago, she was on the Oscar stage singing Till It Happened to You, which is the song that was Oscar nominated and was devoted to highlighting and discussing and not hiding the prevalence of sexual assault and the millions of women who are, you know, been raped, never reported, been assaulted, etc. So that is very on brand for her. That's kind of the last we saw of her until this Super Bowl. Is that true? No, I mean, she's been promoting that album, Joanne. She's been pretty visible. Um, in terms of like a live performance of that magnitude, to use that word again, with that kind of audience, like the Oscars have millions of viewers around the world, the Super Bowl you just mentioned, 100 million. So this wow. is, yeah. So this is going to be probably her biggest live audience since the Oscars, but basically of her entire career. So as we say, by the time you listen to this, Lady Gaga has performed. So here's my question. Either she did something overtly political or she did not. If she did, who do you think she pissed off? Well, I will give you her quote verbatim because I paraphrased. Quote, one of the things I'm most excited about for this halftime show, as much as it is a great moment for me in my life, I really don't feel like it was given to me. It was given to them. So essentially, that kid that couldn't get a seat at the cool kids table and that kid that was kicked out of the house because his mom and dad didn't accept him for who he, for who he was, that kid's going to have a stage for 13 minutes and I'm excited to give it to them. Wow. Okay. Because my next question… I think my paraphrase was pretty good. It was pretty… <laughs> it was pretty good. No lawsuits here. <laughs> my next question to you was going to be, if she's not political, who will be disappointed But I think that quote highlights it pretty clearly. It's pretty clear that she is continuing to be as devoted to her core audience as she ever has been. Let's, let's, let's be clear here. She is going to sing Born This Way, right? She sang five or six songs throughout the course of her career, her biggest hits. Born This Way probably has to be included. Sure, absolutely. I would accept Disco Stick in a less, uh, <laughs> a less political oeuvre, but yes, for sure. So Born This Way for an audience of 100 million people, many of whom, including the current Vice President of the United States, um, don't consider Born This Way an actual way, but something that you can change, fix, I say that in quotations, through conversion therapy. 
Is the song enough? Is the song enough? It's huge. Like, look, this is what we're talking about. And I'm still kind of tossing it over in my mind. We're smart people, you and I. But, you know, we're not secret agents. Like, I feel like, uh, you know, the broadcasters and the NFL, some of whom would not like something so political to happen at the biggest televised audience, could get to this same conclusion without too much math doing. I don't know. I feel like some people have to be bashed over the head with it. Then I'm happy for her to do the bashing. I look forward to seeing how this is going to go down. Yeah. I And we will regroup and we will, you know, hopefully we will be watching Lady Gaga as, again, at this recording, at the time of the recording of the show, we have not seen Lady Gaga at the Super Bowl yet. But in terms of adding to her career, which is already illustrious, it is for her, she has said that she has been preparing for this moment she was, since she was like a child. Wow, <laughs> I'm even more excited now. She And what I love about that statement is it sets up an expectation. When you talk about dreaming about something since you were, what, four or five years old, I think was what she said. When you talk about the fact that you are presenting your career biggest hits, that you are um, giving a 13-minute snapshot of what your accomplishments are, what you are saying is, get ready, I'm going to give you a show. But do you think she's also saying thank you and good night? That sounds real dramatic. A 13-minute snapshot that she's been preparing for since she was a child? Is there any repercussion where this could be it? Where this could be the summit? I don't know. This is just so much speculation at this point, but it's all starting to sound... This is what happens when you overanalyze, when you don't have enough information. But I'm really curious now to see if... uh, if like Beyonce, she can surpass what I think my expectations are. Well, on that note, when we're talking about surpassing expectations and reaching a summit and where you go from there, we come to Ben Affleck. (laughs) It's like you were hoping to use that transition your entire life. I think that was a great segue because the summit for Ben Affleck was his film, Argo, which he directed, was the Best Picture Oscar. Although he did not win Best Director. He did not. He was not nominated that year. But the film that he directed was Best Picture. So just to give you an idea of what that means in terms of perpetuity, when you go to the Oscars, they always take plays at Hollywood and Highland at what is currently the Dolby Theater. (laughs) Uh, I laugh because (laughs) it changes names all the time. I almost said Kodak, but it's now Dolby. And... um, When you walk down the red carpet, you have to turn right to go up the stairs to get into the theater and along the pillars, and it's inside like a weird mall. Should we actually (laughs) lay this out for people? Yes. The whole thing is, it's kind of wrapped in a U shape around a mall, as you say, like a weird outdoor, indoor mall. Yeah. That is also part of a hotel complex. Yes. In which we stay. (laughs) And the whole thing is kind of cordoned off from traffic. And the limo lines that you've seen and heard of kind of pull around the corner in such a way that you can wait in line in your limo for 45 minutes sometimes just waiting to walk around this red carpet. There's bleachers. There's 
and uh, there's entertainment hosts waiting to interview you. There are people screaming, and then you sort of make the right turn and you ascend up these giant stairs into the actual physical theater, past like a candy shop. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> On any other ordinary day, it's a candy shop and like a hot topic. <laughs> Yes, there's a hot topic yes. right beside the thing. Yeah, and like an Auntie Anne's pretzels, and so they walk and like past a Sephora and whatever. Like yeah. a sh- like it's a mall. It's a crazy. It's and oh, that thing that we love, which is the proactive booth. There's a proactive soda pop machine. Is there? There's, yes. There's also a vending machine that sells like headphones, like expensive three hundred dollars. The headphones. most bizarre thing. Anyway, so as you were, we laid it out, and so as you go up these steps. And as you turn the corner, there are these pillars, and on each pillar are plaques. They're gold plaques. They're beautifully laid out, and they um, have the name of all the Oscar-winning best pictures from, like, the beginning of the Oscars. So Argo is there, lives there, and it will be in perpetuity. I mean, the Oscars are not going to die. Can I just interject? Yes. Argo, fuck yourself. (laughs) Sorry. It's a compulsion. Okay. Please continue. Okay. So… My point is, when we're talking about summits and career achievement, Ben Affleck directed a film that is on one of those pillars. Right. And then the divorce happened or the separation happened or whatever you want to call it. And he played Batman and he just directed a film. It was released. Nobody went to see it. What was that film? Uh, Live by Night. Sure. Um, You know, Live by Night, guys. (laughs) Um. Look, the box office was shit. And this week, it was confirmed that the standalone Batman movie, The Batman, starring Ben Affleck as The Batman, which he was supposed to write and direct, has changed. He will still star, but he will no longer be directing. And he released a statement. And in the statement, he essentially said, I can't do both jobs. It's so big of a job to play Batman that I also can't direct myself being Batman and all the other parts that come with directing the film. That is an admission that, I don't know, you correct me, but this is the discussion, of the work being too much or choosing to focus on one side of the work and not um, damaging and compromising that work by also working on another thing. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear here. Ben Affleck has directed himself in movies before. He directed himself in The Town. He directed himself in Argo, both of which are more, you know, they're more ensemble films than Batman, certainly. And certainly, and I say this as somebody who will probably wind up seeing The Batman, but it's not first on my list. There are a lot of elements, right? There's a lot to fan service and there are going to be a lot of special effects and there are going to be a lot of things. And so, yeah, it's undeniable that it is going to be a huge undertaking, no question. And I can see how it would be a bigger undertaking than any film he has directed in which he also starred so far. When you say, you know, choosing some work over the other, here's the real question. When you talked about the pillars and Ben Affleck walking and the whole thing, you didn't talk about a movie he starred in. You didn't talk about the Oscar that he won 
for writing Goodwill Hunting. You talked about the movie that he directed. Arguably, that is the bigger achievement and has led to the malignment of writers for many decades uh, in terms of film. But there are a lot of people who believe wholeheartedly, and there's a reason to believe it, that directors are the people who make the movie. So in terms of giving up one job for the other, if you can't do both, it's an interesting choice, right? I don't, you know more about superhero movies than I do. So tell me about the prestige of playing Batman that I might be undercutting. Well, if you're going to relate it to Oscars, he's not going to win an Oscar for playing Batman. Sure. As good as the movie may be, when we don't know, even if it's like gangbusters good, the Dark Knight good. The Dark Knight was, of course, Chris Nolan, Christian Bale, and Heath Ledger. Even if it's the Dark Knight good, it's, he's not going to win an acting Oscar. But is that in nerd culture, if you decide to take on the role of probably the most famous superhero? I think Batman is. I mean, oh God, I don't want to get into a fucking nerd fight, but it's Batman or Superman. Yeah, Superman and has more name recognition. Batman is probably more beloved. So that's there. right. So if you're going to take on Batman... You have a duty, I guess, to that culture and that um, environment to be like, okay, I am full on just going to be Batman and play Batman and wear the suit and like grunt and whatever. Um, And I don't want to like open myself up to any criticism that my Batman was in a way less than Michael Keaton's Batman or Christian Bale's Batman because I was directing the movie at the same time. Right? Sure. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I get it. I get that there's a lot, a lot of pressure. Um, and I guess too, it has to do with what Ben Affleck is going to do with his career. Like he is how old now? 40 some 44. So I don't know. When's the last time we saw Clooney in a leading man role? Was it that terrible, uh, money monster? Yes. Um, that's amazing. He (laughs) doesn't care that much about being a movie star. Then there are people who you see release two or three movies a year. Ben Affleck still releases a lot of movies as an actor. You know, it's that thing where I and people younger than me need to be reminded that Ron Howard used to be an actor. There are a lot of people who kind of choose directing over acting as they get older. It looks like Ben Affleck may not do that. He may be trying to remain a leading man. And in his, oh yeah, in his defense, like there aren't a lot of them. If you are going to stay a leading man, you know, I'm trying to think of who else is 44 and kind of darkly good looking and can carry the kind of movies that Ben Affleck can carry. He kind of has a, a, a world open right in front of him. There's like Leo, Leo 41, eh, 42. Eh, whatever. He's kind of blonde. <laughs> We may be getting into some personal bias. I love that Leo has never done it for you. Ever. Um, But yeah, you're, you know, but I want to go back to the point you made because I never thought of that. You talked about writing being maligned. Oh, yeah. Ben Affleck, most people would, most people in that business would die for one Oscar, let alone two. He has two. One for writing Goodwill Hunting. Shared with Matt Damon. That's right. And one for Argo as Best Picture because he's one of the producers. That's right. So it's also a shared Oscar for being real. That's right. So is 
is Ben Affleck obsessed in the singular pursuit of recognition? Maybe. You know, every time Ben Affleck has had a huge achievement, there's a, a bit of an asterisk beside it, right? Right. So Matt Damon and then producing, George Clooney was up on that stage with him. Right. Um, and Grant Hesloff, George Clooney's producing partner. That's right. And that's not unusual. You know, movies take many producers to get it done. You know when like 98 dudes in suits crowd the stage and you're like, what am I looking at? It's 1140. I'm so tired. Yeah. That's what's happening. It's a million producers. They all put in some level of money or work or whatever to to get to stand up there. So fair enough. But in terms of Ben Affleck being, you know, on Ben Affleck's own shoulders, maybe not yet. Maybe it hasn't been there yet. And I brought up the town earlier because it seems to me to be the most Ben Afflecky of Ben Affleck productions. <laughs> but, you know, as much as people liked it, it wasn't an award winner. It was not a it wasn't banging down the doors of, you know, history. Yeah. So, okay. So sure. Let's say he is looking for singular praise and pursuit. Is Batman going to live longer in history than say Argo or as long? I don't know. Like, and again, I wouldn't say that Argo is going, or sorry, I wouldn't say that Batman is going to win him an Oscar, but he's going for that Ben Affleck was the best Batman. Oh, my God. I, don't you think? Yeah. Don't no, you think? You're not wrong, but it is hard to – it's a hard thing to consider that there is actually a contest about these kinds of things because – Really? Yeah, really. Anyway. We're yes. going to stay with the superhero comic book tip because we're going to go to Aquaman. Aquaman is, I guess, another DC superhero. Look, I don't know anything about Aquaman, so everybody, you can yell at me. Sarah, hi. Sorry. Um, send us your essay. Duanna and I will read it and study. Anyway, Aquaman is going to be played by uh, Jason Momoa, and they reported this week that they are casting for Aquaman's mother, and Nicole Kidman is negotiating... There has been no confirmation, right, Duanna? No, not that I know of. Um, but, you know, I should point out, because I feel like not as many people know who Jason Momoa is when you say Jason Momoa. Call Drogo. Guys. <laughs> Call Drogo is playing Aquaman. And right. Nicole Kidman, who is 12 years older than Jason Momoa, is in negotiations to play his mother. Right. So let's be specific here. Jason Momoa is 37 years old. Which this is would... me over here being skeptical. <laughs> 37 years old and, P.S., the partner of our beloved Lisa Bonet, Denise Expo for Life. Um, and Nicole Kidman, as you mentioned, Duanna, is 49. She is so, 12 years older than him. Yes. So um, Aquaman's mother gave birth to him when she was 12. You hope, I guess? <laughs> um, so, yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I was going to rant about why is she playing somebody's mother? Like, what kind of a role is that? Aquaman's mother doesn't even have a name. Uh, this is why you and I are not uh, superhero movie people to consult. However, as a, Sarah cringes and face palms. A, uh, a cursory scan of uh, the information superhighway tells me 
that uh, she would play Atlanta, uh, that's not a mispronunciation, who's part of the royalty which rules over the underwater kingdom of Atlantis. She escapes, however, and falls in love with the lighthouse keeper, giving birth to the titular superhero who proves to be a bridge between the two worlds. Which means that we're seeing, if we see her, we're seeing the story of when she had Aquaman, which means that we're going to see her when she was a young bride, except it's played by Nicole Kidman. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if that, like, we don't know. We don't know what the Aquaman story is going to be. Maybe when we meet him, he's full grown and he goes to his mother for advice. (laughs) But the point is, as you're, we have all these questions, like, at what stage are we going to see Nicole Kidman as the mother of Aquaman Jason Momoa? I mean, at any point, whether it's Duanna's assumption of it's going to be a flashback. Well, not necessarily, but otherwise, as you say, it's Aquaman going like, gee, mom, I'll always love you. And she goes, I know you will, and caresses her cheek in that way that only people on film do because it's really awkward in real life. (laughs) And I don't see why we need Nicole Kidman for this. Well, I'm going to make it even more infuriating for you because Thor, you've heard of Thor, uh, yes, I guess. I, I do live in the world. I've heard of Thor. So Thor, um, played by Chris Hemsworth, in the first Thor movie, his dad, the head of his planet or universe, I fucking can't remember. I really wanted you to I, say the head of the Thors, but yes. I think it's Asgard. Um, anyway, nerds, you can correct me. I don't care. But his dad is the king of his universe planet Asgard, and played by Anthony Hopkins. So how come Thor can have an age-appropriate father? Age-appropriate? Age, like, getting right up there. Right up there. All due respect to Anthony Hopkins, wonderful actor, but... You could have fit another generation between him and Chris Hemsworth. Like, Anthony Hopkins is not young. He's not Nicole Kidman. So why is it that, like, Aquaman's mom has to be young? Like, why couldn't Aquaman's mom be Judi Dench? Or Helen Mirren, or I don't know, name like Meryl Streep, I, whatever. Well, because why? Like, why? Because why do we need to see Aquaman's mom? To me, the bigger issue is why are these the roles that are happening? We just finished talking about how Ben Affleck is going to choose, is going to choose to stick around and be a movie star. Leading man. A leading man and get all those like tall, dark, and handsome roles that are going to come his way since apparently John Hamm's like, no, I'm too tired. (laughs) So meanwhile, where are the big, bloody, iconic roles that somebody like Nicole Kidman, who has been in the business for 25 years, should be sinking her teeth into? Like, she does well for herself in the sense that she's Nicole Kidman. She's the very top of the A-list. But there are not these iconic names coming at her. I would argue that she hasn't played a truly, truly iconic role, arguably since Virginia Woolf. There is an asterisk on that, and we will get to the asterisk next week. But it doesn't take away from my rant. Where are the roles? And my rant is, why does she have to be so young and like, why isn't that they couldn't cast an, an actor in her 60s and 70s to play the age-appropriate mother of Aquaman? Because then, to quote Tina Fey, nobody would want to fuck her anymore. Right. So we have to want to fuck a superhero's mother, but we don't have to want to fuck a superhero's dad? 
Yes, exactly. Because you're not going. You're not watching. Nobody is thinking about who you want to fuck. That's a shame. And that's another work-related subject because, you know what? If they only wanted to appeal to me, if they, like, they already have that audience, right? Absolutely. That nerd audience who is going to fill in the gaps and send us all kinds of yelling emails with the history of Aquaman and fucking Thor and whatever, those people are already going to go. What you want is the people like me and you, Joanna. Right. But let's be clear. Those nerds that you're talking about who are going to email and yell at us, those are women. Hi, guys. We know you're listening. We know that you can be a woman and obsessed with Marvel or DC, but not both. I know this. Um, Pick one. You know, we know that they could and should appeal to women more. We know that a woman wrote Guardians of the Galaxy, which was a massive surprise hit last year. Yes, I know. I'm crossing superhero universes. Deal with it. But they almost choose to ignore that audience. It's like they don't need them. It's and that's a shout out to you, Sam Maggs. Um, Sam Maggs is uh, because what we want to do here is always call out great work from women. Sam Maggs, if you don't know who she is, wrote The Fangirl's Guide to the Galaxy. She is a self-professed geek girl. She knows all about nerd culture. And uh, she's written two books, the aforementioned, which I said, The Fangirl's Guide to the Galaxy, which is girl power and also girl acknowledgement that girls have a part in nerd culture too, like our very own Sarah. Yeah, leaning into, and I should say Kathleen is a devoted Star Wars fan and a particular brand of comic book nerd, Mm -hmm. although not Buffy and other things. Please yell at her. And Sam Maggs also is the author of Wonder Women, 25 Innovators, Inventors, and Trailblazers Who Change History. That is a great book, too. So, hi, Sam Maggs. Awesome. And love you. And hope you're on our side. Um, we want to end our show today with uh, two reader letters. Yeah. And, you know, I really liked your little call out there. We should do one of those all the time. But for now, we're going to call out you guys uh, because we keep saying... Email us, talk to us, call us, and you do, and it's really cool. And so we wanted to kind of point out a couple of neat notes that we got recently. So we got an email from Patricia. We get quite a few notes from Patricia. Thank you. We love all of them. But she had a particular reaction to us talking about Taylor Swift last week and to questioning whether her kind of lack of overt support and participation in the Women's March was anti-feminist. And she has a really neat opinion. And she said, quote, I know that she is an independent, smart, hardworking woman, but she makes a conscious decision not to show us that work, not to show these young girls that a woman can be the hardest and most thought out worker in the room She keeps with that whole appearance of, look at me, all these famous girls want to be my friend, I'm so likable, shtick, instead of pushing and doing the work of promoting actual feminist values. Feminists argue and criticize each other all the time. It doesn't mean you always have to be a cheerleader for your fellow girls. That's kind of amazing. Yes. That you can be a feminist, but we can have conversations that are confrontational that are um, challenging of each other, but in the end, those conversations at least are conversations. We're having them. 
Sure, it makes us both better. If I say, hey, tell me where you're coming from because I'm not sure I buy what you're selling, that's only good for both of us. You get to tell me your point and I get to learn something new or the opposite. That's right. And that's one of the things we're always talking about here, which is one of the reasons we're constantly yelling at each other. We do constantly yell at each other when you're not yelling at my husband. I mean, that's a little weird. That's, a, that's what we're all about here, support and encouraging other women, and you yell at my husband. What? We got Which a, I yell at your husband. That's true. You really do. So we also got a note from Noha, and Noha wrote uh, when we spoke a couple of weeks back uh, about Megan Kelly, who since we had that podcast, has actually been officially moved into a morning slot on the Today Show lineup. And we were talking about the fact that Megan Kelly is actually uh, going mainstream, being brought to a much larger audience than her former Fox News audience was, and with all the other baggage that working at Fox News entails, uh, everything that, you know, we have heard it to be. And so we got a note from somebody who thought that we did not go into that baggage quite heavily enough. And she writes, I just assumed that even if you guys were going to talk about Megyn Kelly and report on how she was going Hollywood, you wouldn't have so much admiration for her. I know you alluded to her having to follow a script at Fox, but that's actually just an assumption that it wasn't her own beliefs she was peddling. And even if she did have to follow a script, is it okay? Is it justified to move up in the world on the backs of other people you're encouraging the persecution of? You're still angry at Mel Gibson and Justin Timberlake. I am too. You never write or talk about them without pointing out how they've hurt others. Was it too much to expect the same treatment for Megyn Kelly? So, on the heels of Patricia's previous email about feminists challenging each other and disagreeing, Mm -hmm. this is a feminist who's written to us who's challenging us and disagreeing with us and calling us out on what she feels was um, an oversight on our part. And this is a fair point. I'd like to, I'd like to hear more and I'd like to acknowledge, thank you, Noha. Yeah. And I want to point out that the very next line in her email is, quote, I'm writing not to criticize, but to start a dialogue. And that's what we're doing here. And what will I think become obvious is that we're always learning from each other, from the things that we read, from the links that you send. We love to talk about it. We love to sort of go back and re-examine things. You know, we definitely don't sit here and go, oh, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. We can't go back there. Uh, So we will always continue to reinvestigate and rediscuss and, uh, you know, point out if our opinions have changed, if we've had new thoughts, for sure. And definitely... Know how what you've written obviously gave us food for thought and obviously was important enough for us to read it. And I think out of respect for your point of view, we don't want to defend what we did two weeks ago. That is not the point. The point is to let you have your say and to let you know that we're listening. Yeah, and that there are many points of view, even with people that we hope you enjoy listening to and that you largely tend to agree with. So this is only good. We are always, always interested in what you have to say, what you think, and the arguments that you got into at the dining room table when you said, I was listening to these women on this podcast, and they said, please hit us up. 
please tell us what you're thinking. Leave us reviews. We want to hear all of it. And show your work. Always show your work. And see you next time. Bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.